0: And as you're seated, it'll be most helpful, we're not going to have the words on the screen because it's such a large passage we're going to look at, but we're going to be in Psalm 139, so if you have your Bibles or have it on your phone, you'll want to pull it up so you can track along, and as you do, uh, Nick Chatter, uh, which this name might be uh, applicable, but he's a professor of behavioral science at Warwick Business School, and he's the co-founder of a group called Decision Technology, and he's dedicated his whole life, the last 20 years, and has over 200 peer-reviewed papers. Uh, he's a neuroscientist trying to figure out why and what do people actually think And he had a book that came out last year called The Mind is Flat, The Remarkable Shallowness of our improvising brain. And after all his study, he has come to the conclusion that most people actually have no idea why they think what they do, what they think, that all of us are just kind of improvising and we're this mess, just a mess of contradictory thoughts, uh, confusing impulses, and we have no idea why or what we're actually thinking. And you know, it might be an overstatement, but if you're honest, you think, you know, there's a lot of confusion often in our minds. You know, we have, we have things we want, but then we wonder, do we really want it or do, do we not? You know, one of our deepest desires that we all have is we want to be truly known. We want to be known. But then we also want to be fully loved. And we know in the context, is it possible? Like, can I be completely known and then loved at the same time? Like, I know that love without knowledge uh, is just shallow, superficial. But then knowledge without love is one of the most painful forms of rejection. So how can we have, like, is it possible? Can we really be truly known and then fully loved at the same time. It's both our desire and our great dilemma. Is that relationship even possible? And if it is, is it something we even want? And here in Psalm 139, we're going to look at, because Psalm 139 powerfully answers uh, that question. It answers that question that we all ask. Is it possible to be fully known, completely known, and then still loved At the same time. So we're doing a series right now. Our goal for the whole year is for you to experience the transforming power of the gospel. We want you uh, to experience it. And if you're going to, if the gospel is going to transform you, there's certain things you have to know. Kind of triad I like to use is it it, uh, involves sound doctrine, renewal of the Holy Spirit, and faithful living. There's certain things you have to know. You have to have clarity in your mind, but then those things also have to capture your heart. You have to be renewed and refreshed by the Holy Spirit. It has to grip you, and then it has to compel your life. So you have to live it. And in Psalm 139, we're actually going to see that kind of triad play out. Because on the one hand, this is one of the most famous passages in the Bible about kind of who God is. It's kind of it's a classic text for the famous omnis that God is omniscient, he's all-knowing, God is omnipresent, you know, he's everywhere, he's omnipotent, he's all-powerful. So this is a a famous text for that. But one of the things we're going to see is what actually moves David is not an abstract theoretical knowledge that God knows all things, but it's that God knows all about me. And it's not a theoretical, well, God is everywhere, kind of like oxygen or some gas, but God is always with me. And it's not just that God cares for creation, but it's how deeply he cares for me. So this is theological realities about God that have become intensely personal. And once they become deeply personal, that's where the transformation happens, that it, it grips you. So we're gonna go through Psalm 139. As we do, I want you to tune your ear to hear a couple things. Try and listen in for all the no language. What is known? Who knows what? And then I want you also to listen to, all right then, in light of that, in light of what's known, like, how do we respond? How do we respond? How do God respond? What does it, says, what does it say that he, he does? And so the way we're going to kind of break this passage down is almost like in two stanzas. So verses 1 through 18 are going to be our first kind of major stanza. And that's going to tell us about God's knowledge of me, God's presence with me, and God's care for me. And then we're going to look at the second stanza. That's our response to him. And it's going to look at our um, love's loyalty and love's humility. So let's uh, let's jump right into verse one through six. And this verse is God's knowledge of me. Oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down, and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before. You lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot contain it. So as you're looking there, just notice all the things this is the Lord knows. In verse 1, you know everything about me. You have searched me and you have known me. Verse 2, you know when I sit down and when I rise up, you know everything that I do. In verse 2 and then verse 4, notice all the thoughts. You discern my thoughts from afar. So uh, that's both distance. Even if he's far away, he can still know what you're thinking. Or even when your thoughts are far away, you don't even know what you're thinking. He can still discern them. The notes in verse 4: even before a word is on my tongue, you know it. So, not only does he know what you say, he knows what you're thinking you're going to say, even before you say it. So, you know these words, you know the direction of my life, notice the path. And when I lie down, that's like an image that life is on a journey. And you know the path I'm taking. And then when I have to stop and sleep for the night, then you know my ways. So the the path is is the trajectory of my life. The ways are the things that I do each moment. You know what I say, what I'm going to do. You know, this thorough knowledge. And then notice in verse 6, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. So there's this relational knowledge that's, that's intimate and deep, a knowledge that encompasses his whole life. You get that where you hem me in, you surround me, you're before me, you're behind me, and then there's the image of your hand, it's your hand of blessing is on me as I walk. The image is almost like if you've ever been, you know, life stage that we're in, uh, one of the hardest things in any place is just keeping our four kids just around. And so I, my youngest, my four-year-old, I often keep my hand just on his forehead, just making sure, you know, we're walking this way, walking this way, and that's the image here, it's like, your hand is on me, and then David paused, and now there's an interesting turn in verse 6, because first, he says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me, it is high, and then there's a strange phrase, he says, I cannot attain it, can't understand it, It's, it's it's an abrupt phrase, it's almost like, too much, This is too much. It's too close. And then notice the turn it makes in verse seven. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? He's come to an awareness about how intimately and deeply the Lord knows him, and it's causing him to wig out. I need to run away, I need to escape. So, think about that for a moment. And on the one hand, like this is our deepest desire. We claim we want to be known that deeply. You think about like Marianne from Sense and Sensibility about Willoughby. We are two halves of the same soul. Or Anna from Frozen. I mean, what is love? Love is an open door. And I never have met anyone who understands me like you. I mean, we finish each other's. sandwiches (laughs) yeah so that's what we want with someone who knows us so intimately indeed it's what we think we want but then it also is tapping into one of our deepest fears especially once sin has entered into the world remember the first thing that Adam and Eve did once they realized that the relationship with God was broken and he knows he sees he's there What what do they do they hide they begin to hide, they run from his presence. They flee, because here's the tension, we want to be known, but if we're known, there's always that possibility of being rejected, to being turned away. So it's that terror of knowledge. And then if we're honest, you know, like this is talking about an access to your internal world that if we were honest would be really frightening. Like, how would you like it if someone had unfiltered access to everything you thought? I mean, what would they find? That's why Dr. Chatter is so, de- you know, so he, he he gives up on people because he's like, we've dedicated 20 years to try and understand what people think, and all we see is contradictions and hypocrisy and inconsistencies and pettiness. Yeah. That's how we are. If you could really look in, what do you find? Hypocrisy, inconsistency, pettiness, selfishness, self-centeredness, dishonesty. dishonesty. Even in the best of us, you find the worst of things. And you think about it. Think about things like Richard Nixon and Watergate. What brought him down? It was the realization. Was like, is this how he really is? Is this how this man talks when no one's around and no one's, he thinks no one's listening? you know we love the tabloids we love the exploits especially when it's celebrities just get torn down you know what would the tabloid of you look like i mean what if god published an expose of all of your thoughts over the past week could you bear it would you go out in public you think about like what how blackmail works I mean, blackmail works when somebody has knowledge about you that you don't want out, so they hold it over you. We've been, our family, have gotten into this series that we love called Jeeves and Wooster. And Jeeves and Wooster is based on these 1920s novels by P.G. Woodhouse, and it's just kind of comedic, fun. Little story uh, show that the BBC did 20, 30 years ago, and uh, there's these couple characters. Uh, One is this character named Roderick Spode, and Woodhouse is writing this like in the 20s. Was this remarkable, like? foreshadowing of characters like Hitler or Mussolini, but Roderick Spode is this, like, real tough bully wannabe dictator who kind of terrorizes all of Bertie Wooster's friends, one specifically named Gussie Finknottle. And Gussie Finknottle is a lover of newts, and um, he was never really one of the cool kids, but uh, he's engaged to marry this woman that Spode loves, so Spode's always threatening to, like, crush him and pound his head into a jelly. And, uh... Jeeves, Wooster's personal gentleman's gentleman, finds out some information about Spode that no one knows that he doesn't want out. And he won't share it with Bertie or uh, Gussie Finknottle. He just tells them to say the word eulily whenever he's around and you're afraid. So Spode will like rise up and be like, I'm about to break your neck, Fink-Nottle. And Fink-Nottle will say, Eulalie, Spode, Eulalie. And then he'll stop. Oh, I'm sorry, I did not meet you. There's something in that word. He knows something that he doesn't want anybody else to know. And know, we all have things like that down deep to be known, to be really known. We're afraid of. And so we run. And that's what David does. Look in verse 7. Where shall I go from your spirit? So your, your, your spirit, where shall I flee from your presence or face? So really, how can I flee from your face? Same word that used to Jonah, he fled from the presence of the Lord. Same word to use uh, Amos when it talks about criminals who flee, they're fleeing justice. Where, where can I flee from your presence? And then notice the whole cycles here. There's cycles, these are called merisms, where it, it, it highlights two things to give totality. So if I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed and shield in the grave, you are there. Height, depth, no matter how high or low. Horizontal axis, I can't run from you. And if I take the wings of the morning, that's go all the way to the east. And then if I dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, that's all the way to the west. I cannot flee from you. I can't, no height, depth, no length, no breadth. I can't run from you. And then notice two other extremes. Even if I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you and the night is bright as the day for darkness is as light with you. So, well, maybe, maybe there's something I can do in the darkness that you won't see. I mean, you think about it. Why do they call certain things the nightlife? there's just certain things you're trying to do in the dark that you don't want to be seen. And he's wondering, can I flee? Can I go into the darkness? So not only is his knowledge uh, all encompassing of me, but so is his presence. I can't get away from his presence. And that's what Adam and Eve, after sin came into the world, that's what they feared, and that's what they ran from, and they hid. And so what's supposed to bring him comfort actually is bringing him fear and anxiety. So what about you? you? Does it bring you fear? Have you ever tried, or maybe a better question is, how do you try to escape? Because since the fall, we're all hiders. We're all escapers, escape artists. How do we try to avoid, avoid his presence, avoid thinking about certain things, avoid feeling certain things, zone out, tune out, avoid people, avoid subjects, avoid places? How do we hide? This is what he's saying, in essence, I can't hide from you. So that strategy might work in some scenarios, but it's not going to work in this one. And you have to think about it. In many scenarios, it doesn't work there either. One of my middle daughter, one of our daily routines, is we go get the mail together, and we, we walk out, we get the mail, we pull it out, and uh, it's really exciting when there's, like, a card that has, like, birthday money for, uh, for someone. But most days, there's a bill in there. And so she'll ask, like, if we don't open it, do we still have to pay it? <laughs> I like the way you're thinking. (laughs) Unfortunately, that's not how it works. There's certain things you can't hide from. And then that's what God, he's there. So then what do we do? Now notice the next turn in uh, verse 13. It's God's thorough knowledge of me and then his pervasing guiding presence. But then this entails his tender mercy and his care. God cares for me. The knowledge, the presence, the care. Look, it, it doesn't begin when we're an adult. It didn't even begin when we are adolescents. It didn't even begin when we were newborn babies. Look how far he takes back his care. You, for you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made So he's saying, even though I was hidden from human view in my mother's womb, I wasn't hidden from your gaze. Your eye was upon me, even in the very beginning. And when I was in utter seclusion in the womb, you were watching over the process of my formation. And David is pausing. He's saying, if I stop and reflect honestly on myself, I know very well that I am Fearfully and wonderfully made. I love the way the NLT translate that. Translates this. It's wonderfully complex and marvelous workmanship. And as a father of two daughters, I, I am learning both of those things. Wonderfully complex, marvelous workmanship of the God who cares for the fine details of my life notice how he talks about the details the details of my body he formed them and wove them together just like one weaves a fine tapestry when I was in my mother's wounds he cares about the details of my body and notice in his eyes this is one of the great confusions of our world talk about things like image and body positivity God's opinion about our bodies, the bodies he loves, his word for that, are bodies that are fully devoted to him, or fully consecrated, is the biblical word. It means a a body that's fully given to him. So what types of bodies does he love? It has less to do with gene size and more to do with heart commitment to him. He loves one who's fully devoted, consecrated to him. But this body was formed, intricately woven and put together. But then he also noticed, or he cares about the details of my daily living. Isn't that amazing in 16 and 17? For my days were written in your book, every one of them, even before you formed me. So the details of my daily living, every day, every moment of my yet-to-be-experienced life was laid out in this thoughtful plan of God. And then it was verse 17, how precious to me are your thoughts. How vast is the sum of them. What's precious to me are your thoughts. The most important thing about me is not what I think about me or what you think about me, but what he thinks about me. And how precious are those thoughts to me. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they're more than the sand. They can no more be counted than they can be comprehended. These precious thoughts. For me, You know, it's it's almost, you almost can't conceive of it to think that he can see you. See, God, the theological reality, he transcends time. So he's not outside of time. He's not bound by it like we are. So he doesn't see it sequentially, but sees it in his totality. So he can see all of our days at once. And could you imagine if you could see all of your life at the same time? Like we can only see moments, only snippets. I just saw going around this past week, I thought it was really uh, beautiful, but it was a a time lapse photo of the Queen. So, Cody, pull up the time lapse video of of Her Majesty. Pretty cool to be able to almost see like a whole life in a moment. But for every one of you in this room, that's how God sees you. He sees all of you in that moment. We see ourselves as either young or not as young or this or that, but he sees all of you. He sees the fresh smoothness of your childhood. He sees the eager anticipation in your eyes as a youth, the longing, loving looks of your, your 20s. He sees the face that's twisted in pain, the eyes that are throbbing with grief. He sees the deep careworn circles and lines. He sees them all and loves them all. You know, when you think about it, we can only see in part. So in many ways, God knows us better than we even know ourselves. And that's why David in 14 says, I praise you for this. I praise you. So now given that, given his knowledge of us, given his presence with us, given his care for us, how then do we sp- respond? What is love's response in this moment? Now, look at verse 19. Or actually, let's start back in 17 and 18, and then so you can hear the, the, the contrast. So, 17. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than sand. I awake, and I am still with you. And then verse 19, Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. I, what, were you expecting that turn? <laughs> I have to be honest, I almost did not include that in the sermon. I was like, what do I do with this? Where are we going from here? Um, so what do I make of this? Actually, I'd love another week to really embed in the text and find out what's, what, this is, a, this is a, an unexpected turn, so what's it doing here, And I think a couple things at least that it does illustrate. One, if you're going to read the section, we've got to read it in, you know, in its context. And this was very intentionally placed here uh, for a specific thing. And you can go back to like Psalm 137. You know, They're down by the waters of Babylon. They've been taken. They've been exiled. They've, all that they love and hold dear has been stripped and brutally uh, taken from them. And this also tells us that David is thinking about these majestic thoughts. You know, these aren't things that he's sitting there, you know, as he's rocking his newborn baby and all the peace, uh, peace and bliss of a, of a wonderful moment. This is in, in the midst of intensity of life. Like he's surrounded by people who are trying to kill him. And so he's, he's in a hard place. But one thing you can see is a mark of love here is notice the, the strong loyalty. David is very loyal. Now this, there's been a turn in his commitment to the Lord. He says, I, I hate the people who hate you. I love the people who love you. There's this deep loyalty. And you know, intimate relationships can't exist without loyalty. And that's what's coming out here. The Lord's enemies are going to be my enemies. The wicked that you hate, I hate. Now, we live in a different era. And so one thing's like in our men's Bible study, we talk about how you have to trace, you take a passage and you have to put it in the trajectory of redemptive history So, kind of where are we? How do we make sense of this? So maybe in our era, you know, our loyalty might come to expression in different ways. You know, because our Lord has told us that we need to love our enemies. And Paul has told us that we need to hate what is evil and hold tight to what is good. But that that tension is not always easy. And sometimes it's quite costly. But real, genuine love expresses itself in a fierce loyalty. And then notice how it sums up in 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there are any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. This is love's response, and humility is kind of the, the word. I'm not quite settled on that word. Maybe vulnerability, safety. The real word I was looking for is notice the openness, but I couldn't think of a word that rhymed with ITY that was open. <laughs> so maybe we can crowdsource the rhetoric. But the idea is this. Notice the openness. He's open. I'm, I'm humble. I want to learn. I'm teachable. I'm open. It's not that I already know these things. Lord, I want you to, to know me. You have searched me in verse 1 and I want you to search me even more deeply. In verse 2, I celebrated, you know all my thoughts, but I also want you to know my heart too. Know my heart and my thoughts and see, I'm an open book before you. See if there's any grievous way in me and then lead me. I'm going to trust you that you will lead me. So what used to cause me uh, hesitation and to pull back is now causing me to open up and want to enter in. And so the question is like, where does that come from? How did David get there? How do we get to the point where the Lord's all-searching eye and gaze is not something we fear and recoil from, but open ourselves up to? You know, it's kind of a question like, all right, how did did David know this? Because I think if we're honest, we look at our own hearts and we just see the own struggle with those things. I mean, we can find this type of knowledge smothering, You know, we want to make our own decisions. We don't like being observed. We don't like to have to feel that we're completely and totally accountable and answerable to someone. But at the same time, we want the presence. Do you notice in the first, it's the hand of blessing is on me. And then in uh, verse 11 uh, or verse 10, it's your right hand, it leads me. Your right hand upholds me your right hand strengthens me. So we, we, we want the hand there sometimes. So wh- what do we do? How did David know this? How did he come to a point of security and safety? And again, I think we have to read all the Psalms in this section to see. As you go back even to Psalm 130, that kind of starts this whole cycle and it begins, O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my cry for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O God, who could stand? So he knows. He knows the all-seeing eye is on him and if God would mark all of his iniquities, he could not stand. But... With you there is forgiveness. And what David could only see dimly, we can see much more clearly about where that forgiveness comes from. And we can see some things that he couldn't see and celebrate in Psalm 139. You know, when you read Psalm 139, um, you can read it in an abstract way or you can read it in a very personal way. You know how, how how has Jesus loved us this way? You know, on the one hand, you can read in an abstract way. This this week we were at our I was reading this every week with our kids at our breakfast table, and the first time we read Psalm 139, they started laughing. It says, "Oh, that sounds just like Santa Claus. He sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows if you're bad or good. God's just like Santa. So like there's a Santa Clausification of this thing, and, you could read it that way. Tim Keller often uses the word, the gasification of God. When we think about God's presence, we gasify it, or we think it's like a gas, where it's, it's just kind of everywhere. But that's not what God, or especially Jesus, means when he says, I am with you. So like his final promise in the Gospel of Matthew is I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So when a person, not a gas, but when a person says, I am with you, What does that mean? He says, I am with you. It's not that when you suffer, I'm in the room that you're suffering kind of like oxygen. It's no, I am with you in the suffering. I mean, Christianity is the only religion that claims that our Lord knows what it's like to be betrayed, knows what it's like to have the people who you think love you the most turn their back on you. Jesus knows what it's like to be tortured. He knows what it's like to suffer injustice. God knows what it's like to lose a child. They're not just in the room with us in those sufferings. He is intimately with us as one who has experienced it himself. He doesn't just see you do it. He's experienced himself. In fact, he suffered so that in our suffering, we could know that we have God's hand. See, what gives us our peace and security of that hand of blessing that's on us to direct us and comfort us is a nail-pierced hand and it has a hole in it because that's what it costs to forgive us for all of those things that He knows. That's why He's when He says He's with us in our failure. You know, if you believe that God was with you everywhere you've failed. You look at those times and think, all right, if I've done something really wrong, is it possible that he's abandoned me, that he's not uh, here? He says, I am with you even in spite of those failings. Even if you descend to the deepest, darkest place where you think nobody else can know or see he is there. And if your hope is that he doesn't know, that's a false hope. The real hope is what he suffered to forgive you and redeem you from those things in that place. So the whole point is that he sees you to the very bottom and he loves you anyway. He knows you deeper than you know yourself and he doesn't turn his hand away in rejection. He offers it in mercy. He knew what we were like when he went to the cross. He knew what we were like when he experienced hell on earth. And he didn't let that keep him from us. So we shouldn't let our failures keep us from him. In him, we can be truly known and fully loved. As we prayed already, almighty God, to whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hid, cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, that we may perfectly love you and worthily magnify your holy name through Christ our Lord. Amen. Lord, that is our prayer. We praise you for the reality that in you we can both be truly known and then fully loved. So I pray for everyone in this room, the first, that we would, we would know that, that we would not let any fears, not let any failings, not let any sin that we're clinging to, loving it more than you and your grace and your mercy. Keep us from your presence. The reality is we can't run from you. So, Lord, forgive us for trying. Bring us back in your mercy and goodness. This we ask in Christ's holy name. Amen. Every week here we celebrate communion, and communion is our weekly reminder